Good morning. I am happy that spring is coming. It is on its way. Um, before we jump into John chapter 6, I want to uh, just talk about a few probably family, uh, church family items. Um, last night, Abby and I were um, up at the hospital with David and Naomi Tepper, you may or may not know, but their youngest son, um, Benjamin, was attacked pretty seriously by a dog. Um, and uh, they were discharged about 11 o'clock last night, I think, 10.30 or 11, we got out of the hospital. Um, but he got four different areas on his body. He got staples on the back of his head, a number of places. So keep them in prayer. Uh, Naomi's our, our missions pastor and sort of a children's pastor here at the church. So keep them in mind. Maybe take them a meal, give them a call, shoot them an email. Uh, but let's rally around them and support them. Uh, secondly, uh, Power Camp is full speed ahead. I'm happy to stand here and announce this morning. Um, so our registration and applications for staff uh, will go live shortly. That's also registrations for campers. That's Power Camp NC, like powercampnorthcarolina.com. That's that website. Uh, more information to come on that, but I'm gonna direct camp this year and my dear wife, Abby, is gonna partner with me and carry much of the administrative responsibilities of camp to enable me to uh, continue to focus both at the church and back at camps. So we're very, very excited about that. Um, the goals for camp, just so you can already begin to be praying, um, and if you're new here, Power Camp is a summer outreach mission that we do, um, and the vision of that is to disciple young adults, to reach families, and to grow the body of Christ. So the, what we do at Power Camp is bring first to eighth graders into camp, but the mission of camp is really to disciple young adults and to grow the body of Christ. So uh, one of the goals uh, is disciple young adults. The second goal is to reach campers and their families with the saving love of Jesus. A third goal is we're going to use Power Camp this summer, and we are going to actually ask for you as our church to come back and get involved. We're, gonna, we're working on a way, we don't have it totally built yet, but we're working on a model where our small groups, our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our deacons, people like Kyle walking down the way here, can get involved and actually be a part of advancing the cause back at Power Camp. So uh, anyway, as, as a sort of a subset of that, we are hoping and praying that we bring 12 new families into the church this summer via Power Camp. So we're really building a bridge from back there to up here. Can we say amen to that? Yeah. All right, good. <clears throat> Uh, last thing is we had a wonderful middle school and high school lock-in on, was that Friday night? I'm, I'm, my days have run together. I think that was Friday night. I don't know if Matt's here or Catherine. Um, oh, way back up here, there's Matt. Um, wonderful. Matt, Matt just put together an incredible lock-in. He had a team of about 12 that I think joined him. There were 66 or 67 students and 12 leaders, and they put me in the dunk tank, and it was cold. And I think my favorite thing, though, was that Matt, um, Abby, and I left. We did not stay all night, but uh, Matt sent me a video um, from about 2 in the morning when spontaneous worship erupted. And uh, Tommy Cameron apparently picked up his guitar with a couple of the other ones, and spontaneous worship erupted for two and a half hours in the middle of the night. So uh, come on. Way to go, Matthew George. And uh, more importantly, way to go, Jesus. So all right. Turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be uh, focused on uh, verses 1 through 15, 1 through 14 this morning. Uh, if you didn't get one of your little, there's an outline that is in your bulletin. If you didn't get one of those, if you'll stick your hand up, Bob Houston's coming down and he has a fistful of them. There's one over here, Bob. Anyone else who wants an outline to follow along, just stick your hand up. Bob, we have one all the way up here, Miss Christine Logan. 
And that might be it. Okay. All right, John chapter 6. Let's dig in. And, you know, one of the things I like to do when I preach is I like to read the Word without making any comments. Because it's the Word. In the beginning was the? And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That's right. This is This is the life of Christ lived in us and through us. So I'm going to read it, and uh, the way I figure it, if the sermon's terrible, at least the word got read. Okay, let's read together. Lord Jesus, open our eyes here. Starting in chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm reading out of the NIV. Verse 2, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming towards him and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take almost a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, and he gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. When the disciples had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left, and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, they filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves, and left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus had performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountainside by himself. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, this morning would you enliven our hearts? Would you allow us to see and hear with the ears of our hearts, the eyes of our hearts? Would you bring awakening to us? Would you make this word so alive that we could be transformed and that Christ in us would be magnified. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, you guys who know me know that one of the things that I like to do is share rather vulnerably. I believe in being authentic. I believe in being real. And I kind of think, you know what? Jesus was a relatively authentic guy. His disciples were too. He picked fishermen. And we ought to be that way also. But I want to share something sort of vulnerably, and I want to use my insecurity as a springboard for you. Okay, you following me? So I want to use my insecurity as a springboard for you to really look at your own insecurities. Sometimes when I get up here and share vulnerably, you could mistake my sharing for a cathartic experience. I assure you, it is not. It is intended rather to be an inroad for you to examine your own heart and your own mind and let the Holy Spirit speak to you about the ways that he wants to empower and even transform your weaknesses into strength. So here it is. It is a fearsome thing for me 
to get up here on Sunday mornings. And here's why. This church has such a history of great preachers and teachers who have stood here before me. Right on the front row, Pastor Jim's going to kick me later for saying this, but we have Pastor Jim who is Dr. Reverend James Glasgow. And right down from him, we have Pastor Steve, who is, uh, I guess, a dissertation paper away from being Dr. Reverend Stephen Mattis. And back here somewhere, I don't know if Ron and Florence are here today, but we have the Reverend Ron Routon, who's an incredible communicator. Usually up here somewhere, we have the Reverend Hall Powell, who's also an incredible communicator. Right here, we have Patsy Lennon, who traveled all over our great nation and has spoken to crowds of hundreds and even thousands for Women's Aglow. Clive and Ruth. We have Clive and Ruth sitting right back here. Clive, wave, wave at us. Clive and Ruth are new congregants, but Clive has penned 24 books. 24 books. He's going to be speaking to us on March 5th, I believe. He's been a pastor coming to us, retiring down here and joining our congregation from Connecticut. You have the Reverend Horace Hilton, who we all know. His picture hangs on the wall out here. And he was this master of bringing practical teaching, the Word of God, and activating the Holy Spirit in our midst. So it's intimidating to think about standing up here and talking about the Word of God and attempting to communicate in such a way that is true to the Scripture and applicable to your lives. And I have these moments occasionally where I'll get worked up and I'm like, what even do I have? And here's the truth. In my own strength, I have a big <laughs> zero. I have a couple of barley loaves and two little withered, dried fishes. So I spend some, time, some amount of time preparing for a sermon, content-wise, but I probably spend more time preparing my heart because it's just not about me. And I want to welcome you here today to the realization that it's just not about you. It's about Christ in us. I actually love, one of the things I do love about preaching is this stage, and, it, and this is very un, unusual, but I get to preach at the foot of the cross. Look at this. I get to preach at the foot of the cross under this symbol of the Holy Spirit. It just reminds me, occasionally I just have to remind myself, it's not about me. It's about him. It's about Christ in us. And I love this story because you see this, you basically see two disciples who freak out. And you see this little boy who comes up with a couple of barley loaves and a few fish. If we were honest and we all went around the room, we could share our insecurities, couldn't we? And if you're like me, you know that insecurity is more or less when we start comparing our bloopers reels. You guys know what a blooper reel is? We start comparing our blooper reels with somebody else's highlight reel. 
That never works very well, does it? But here's the point. All this is to say, it's not a joke for me to think about getting up here. I get insecure. I get nervous. And if I get focused on my loaves and fish, so to speak, I tend to falter mentally. Jesus in me. So I want to remind you of something as we dig back into the scripture. Today, don't mistake my vulnerability for an opportunity to come and encourage me afterwards. Don't miss that. Sometimes I'll stand up here and share vulnerably and people will come up afterwards and go, you really are? No, 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 no. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that I am inviting you into my vulnerability so that you can sort of gaze down under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your own life and find your most vulnerable areas. Find the areas where you feel the weakest and begin to invite Christ Jesus into that spot because we serve this God who loves to take the weak things to confound the wise. It's from Genesis to Revelation. It's what I love about our God. It's what I love about my Jesus. So let's dig back into this passage and right off the bat in the first few verses, what you kind of see here are you got John, the beloved disciple, he's writing these things and he begins to immediately call the question for us, why do we follow Jesus? Because what he's saying is there's this group of people who are following Jesus because of the spectacle he's produced. Jesus has made this big scene in the cities and the countrysides and the villages and people are following him because he's made a spectacle. Others are following him because of his miraculous signs. Others are following him because they're enamored by his works. And right off the bat, you begin to see John calling us sort of in a rhetorical fashion. Why do we follow this Jesus? Point number one, if you'll put that up for me, Caleb. We see this with Philip, because what happens is Jesus is standing up on this hill, a grassy hill, and he's gathering, people are gathering to him. And I've read a number of different, uh, I guess, commentaries on this passage. And there's 5,000 men who are gathering to him. That does not include women and children. And do you know that most churches in America are made up of more women than men? You guys know that? That's true. I don't know if it was true in this day, but if there was 5,000 men, what's a good guess on how many women there probably were? Five, seven, I heard ten, okay. And then how many children you think were running around? All of them, Jerry Cannon, thank you. I read one commentator that said 25,000 people was the guess. So whether it was 10,000 or 15,000 or 25,000, what begins to happen is you have all these people coming out to Jesus and the Exxon or the Kentucky Fried Chicken is a good walk away. And they're hungry and it's getting late in the day. And Jesus looks over at Philip. I love this. Love it, love it. He looks over at Philip and says, what are we going to do? And here it is. I want you to see this. Because John 6, verse 6, look at it. He said this to test him. He said this to test him. Point number one, what we do here on earth echoes into eternity. That's number one on your little insert there. God tests us to prove us both for our earthly inheritance and for our eternal placement. 
I want you to note a couple of things here. The word test in that John 6, 6, and I have this on your outline, is perezo. Perezo in the Greek. And it's translated to tempt or to test, to try, to examine, or to prove. And in Scripture, if you look at all the places this is used in the Greek, you begin to see that the context best determines how this Greek word perezo should be translated. You follow me? Okay. So let me give you an example. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. You remember this? And Satan came to him to yeah. test him. That's right. Same Greek word, perezo. Now, Satan's mode of being evil, you can know that an accurate translation of that Greek word perezo would be to test him, to tempt him. Excellent. But in this situation, you have Jesus, and his heart is for Philip. He has a heart of love for Philip. He wants to see Philip succeed. He wants to see Philip rise above his own faithlessness, so to speak, like he does in your life and my life. So the accurate translation in this context would be to prove. Jesus wants to prove Philip. His heart is not that Philip would fail the test. His heart is that he is allowing something in, in Philip's life, in this situation, and he wants Philip to succeed. He wants Philip to take on a new measure of faith. In James 1.13, it says, God never tempts anyone. It's an important little note here. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul also writes, test yourselves. He didn't mean tempt yourselves, rather he means prove yourself. So what we begin to see here in the scripture is we have Jesus and he's got this heart for Philip to succeed. He's got a heart for all 12 of his disciples to succeed. And I think sometimes we as Christians, when negative things happen in our hearts or in our lives, we start to think very badly of our father, don't we? Come on. And we start to think he might be out to get us. He might be out actually to make us fail the test. Not that he wants to prove us. He wants us to succeed. It's out of this tremendous heart of love. But let me make this real practical. Last night, Abby and I are in the car, and we are driving to the hospital to see Ben Tepper. Ben is six years old. He's been attacked by a dog. And in my mind, I am actually going back through all of the testing that David and Naomi Tepper have been through. Their house burnt down, or almost a portion of it burnt down when they were up in Manhattan. They led a ministry up there for 10 years, and they eventually had to shut that down and come down here to be a part of this family. We're so grateful. They have some challenges with Ben's educational needs. There's other things that I'm not going to go into. But I began to go, Lord, why are you doing this to these people who we love so dearly? I got defensive. You know what I'm saying? You know how we get defensive for one another? It's like, Lord, how can they handle more? How can they, how can they endure more? And I could go around this, this congregation. When I make pastoral care visits or calls, I find myself often going, oh, Lord Jesus, would you intervene? And yet, God is utilizing challenging circumstances to prove his people, not just for their earthly inheritance, but for their eternal placement. Life is this little breath. It's this little steam that blows away 
What is left is that we're called to co-rule and co-reign with Christ Jesus for eternity. So we have situations that arise in our lives, and I think that oftentimes we judge God. We get defensive. Was I defensive that the dog bit him? I don't know. Maybe. Was I defensive? Satan's coming after them. Okay, maybe. But in the end, my God is allowing this. Did he cause it? No. Is he tempting anyone? No. But he's allowing this for their good, to prove them, for their earthly inheritance, and for their eternal placement. So for me, at the end of the evening, we were actually standing in there with them, and somebody said something about getting the dog. We need to go get that dog. And guess what I said? Yeah, we do. (laughs) And I literally went, oh, there I go, Lord. There I go. Jesus, Jesus, I choose to surrender to the knowledge that you mean good, not harm. That everything you do in these precious people's lives is for their good, for your glory, for their eternal placement, for their earthly inheritance. Who am I to stand in judgment of God most high? Second Timothy 2.12, if you're taking notes, indicates that we'll be ruling in the heavenly realms alongside Jesus for all eternity. God is testing members of our body to prove them. When Jesus looked at Philip that day and Philip started freaking out, Jesus looks at him and said, how are we going to feed so many? Philip's like, it's going to take all year's wages to feed all these people, even to give them one bite. I have no idea. I have no idea, Jesus. Philip's scared. And then Andrew also joins Philip in the freak out. I love this. Jesus wants to feed the multitude and Andrew is all of a sudden like, these guys want Jesus to succeed. They believe in Jesus. They're scared to death. How is he going to do this? He's setting himself up for failure. And so Andrew finds this little boy with these five barley loaves and two fish. I got a picture. Will you put that up? A couple interesting things about this. Uh, Barley was way cheaper than wheat in the day. Okay? So barley loaves would have been the bread of the poor. And dried fish, this is probably not a good example of dried fish, but uh, they would have probably been a little smaller and a little more withered looking, but I couldn't find a picture that I felt like accurately reflected. So what we have is probably um, five little barley, almost like pita breads, but mini pita breads, probably barely enough for a grown man at lunchtime, which I love because our Jesus takes what is not enough and he makes it enough. I love that. You know, when we read this, I think most people think of a loaf of bread and you almost picture what you would purchase at the Great Harvest Bread Company. Right? <laughs> Little kid was carrying five loaves of bread. And a couple of big things of dried salmon. No, no, no. This guy, it was barely enough for his lunch. I want to tell you a sardine story real quickly because these fish were about the size of sardines. At our house, at Abby and my house, um, family dinners are very important. We just don't miss family dinners. Occasionally there'll be something scheduled and and that's fine, but by and large we, we make 
dinner together, we sit down together, and we clean up together. It's a family experience. And at family dinner, uh, we will talk about the, the highlight of our day, um, or a funny thing that happened during our day, or our favorite part of the day, and we'll usually go around, or kind of popcorn style, and, and all four of us will share. And um, Eve, uh, Christmas or two ago, got this little set of cards that was specifically for family dinner conversation. And so occasionally she'll pull that out of her dinner and she'll pull cards out and these cards have conversation questions that get our whole family talking and interacting over something that's usually funny. So anyway, she pulls out one of these the other night and this was just five or six nights ago and it said, what was the grossest thing you've ever eaten? So we're going around and um, I spent a little bit of time in Africa and uh, I got to share that I ate a, um, a goat head one time um, and I ate Mapani worms one time. So, you know, I was feeling pretty good about my, you know, what I got to share. And then Eve, uh, it was Eve's turn. This is our 11-year-old. And uh, she said, this one time, Dad, you pulled this little tiny can out of the closet. And you opened this can up. And there were these stinky fish with the skin on them. And there was bones in them. And the whole kitchen got stinky. And then you ate them on crackers. And then she looked over at Abby and she was like, and you ate one. And Abby and I are looking at each other like, we don't even remember this. I certainly, though, know Abby would not eat a sardine. But in Eve's mind, Abby ate a sardine. So Eve said, and so I decided to eat one. And I put this little sardine on this little cracker and I stuck it in my mouth. And it was the worst thing I've ever eaten. Eh, the bones were crunchy and the skin was slimy. And mm. We all laughed. We all laughed. But those little sardines that we ate that day in the kitchen of our apartment, I think were much like the little sardines that this boy brought in that day. I want to also point out in this story, I love the fact that Jesus didn't just bless the food when he broke the bread. He actually blessed the Lord and thanked the Lord for the food. Sometimes we bless the food. You know that? Jesus blessed the Lord. Interesting. But this brings us to our second point. And this is really the principle of the 5,000. It's one of my life principles. And it's that God can take the meager portion of the fully surrendered heart and he can magnify it to reflect the providence of eternity. We serve a God who loves to take what is weak and magnify it. That is the gospel story. It is the strength of Christ Jesus being lived out through broken men and women. I want to point out, and I don't want to get too much further in, the, in, in John chapter 6, because that's coming in weeks that are going to come. But I want to point out that Jesus gathered a crowd, or a crowd rather, gathered around Jesus. 10, 15, 20,000 people have gathered. Then he breaks the bread, he prays over it, and he distributes it, and he feeds the crowd. And a few verses later, he unloads the hardest teaching yet. You've got to eat my flesh, and you've got to drink my blood. And many of the people, suddenly the crowd splits and you're left with the disciples. In an age here in America where we are largely focused on a consumer-driven church, a megachurch almost mentality, 
Christ in a day builds a megachurch and then dismisses them with the hardest teaching yet because he is looking, he is sifting the hearts of men and women, looking for the people who are disciples, looking for the ones who can assimilate the body and blood of Christ Jesus, who can assimilate the cross of Christ, who can say, not me, Jesus, but you in me and through me. I have been crucified with Christ. Please understand, I love great marketing. We'll use great marketing this summer with Power Camp. But Christ's take on the church was very different, and consumerism cannot coexist with those who are true disciples of Christ Jesus. So I want you to think with me just a minute this morning as we move on in our message, but about the places in Scripture where Jesus glorifies his power or magnifies his power in those most weakest. We have this, this passage, and there's dozens and dozens of these. Here's just a few. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, My power is made perfect in your weakness. That's right. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 says, I use the weak things of the world to confound the wise. In the Old Testament, one of the greatest kings was this shepherd boy, the least of the family. He didn't even come in when the prophet came to town. He, they kept him in the field. Surely it's not him. He's the least. But God worked through King David. You can look at Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 where a king called by God, sends out worshipers, musicians ahead of the army. We serve a God who loves to take what is the weakest and the thing that makes the least sense, and he loves to use it to magnify his kingdom. This is what Jesus is all about. Think of Gideon in Judges 6 with a crew of 300 who routes an army thousands and thousands and thousands strong, <clears throat> excuse me, by the power of God in them. You know, the day I met my precious Abby, she didn't know me from Adam. She didn't know I was a believer and I was in a tough personal spot. I'm not gonna go into that this morning. But after she said hi to me, we had a conversation a little bit later in that day. And she said, you know, Michael, I believe, I don't even know if she knew my name. She said, you know, I believe in a God that can make something beautiful out of something that has been destroyed. That's the gospel. He makes all things new if we're willing to surrender that meager portion that we have to him. God can take the meager portion of the fully surrendered heart and magnify it to reflect the providence of eternity. It's not just America that loves to see the underdog win. That originated in the heart of God. So this morning, I want you to consider your greatest vulnerability, your greatest insecurity, your greatest need. It might be in your marriage. It might be in your finances. It might be in the way you relate to your spouse. It might be a job. It might be something that God has called you to do. But I want you to know that the heart of Jesus is to take that weakest area and to magnify his strength through it. That brings it, me to my last point. Caleb, if you'll put that up. John 6 is all about Jesus being the bread of life. 
Jesus calls us to eat the bread of life, to eat him as the bread of life, eat him as the bread of heaven. And I want to say here that you can primarily be a contributor or primarily a consumer, but you cannot be both. I want to unpack that. We're called to consume the bread of heaven and then contribute to the work of Jesus here on earth. What you see going on in John 6 in the first couple verses is you have all these fans of Jesus who want to primarily become consumers of his goodness without sharing in the mission. You see that? They want to follow him while he's working the miracles. They want to follow him while he's doing good. They want to follow him while he's feeding them. But the moment it gets tough and he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, become my disciples, take up your cross and follow me, what happens to the crowd? They split. I'm not saying we're not called to be consumers. We're just called to be consumers of the bread of heaven, of the life of Christ Jesus, and then contributors to the mission of what he's doing here on earth. The old Myrtle Grove mission statement, I actually love it, when Horace was here, was preparing the saints for their work of ministry. And I love that because you begin to get the idea of an army of believers who are all contributing to the mission of Christ. I want you to go back and I want you to think of my intro here. Think of my own weakness, my own insecurity. Oh, can I get up and bring a message? I don't know. If I get focused on myself and consumption, I get worried about my insecurities, and yet when I remain surrendered to him, I bring a message where I tend to focus on encouraging and contributing to the body at large. You see that little shift in focus? When you shift from wanting to be a consumer to understanding that you're called to consume the bread of heaven and then contribute to the work of Jesus here on the earth, something changes in your mind and all of a sudden your insecurities melt away because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's all of a sudden about the power of this resurrected Christ Jesus. It's not even about what you've done. It's not about how big your sin is. It's about the power of a risen Christ Jesus in you and through you. That is good news for us today. Jesus will not allow us to spend our lives sitting and eating the bread and the fish. He will call us onward to become contributors to his mission. Remember, he called Peter at the very end, feed my sheep. So Dean, I don't know where you are, but if you'll come and join us and begin to play, I want us to move into a ministry sort of mode here, a reflective mode. And I think the essence of this story this morning calls the question, do we believe we can fully surrender our meager portion to Jesus? And allow him to use our weakness, our frailties, and our insecurities to demonstrate the providence of eternity. Can we reframe the situations of our lives in such a way that Jesus can be magnified? Let's close our eyes for a minute. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to sift through your heart for a few moments. Where are the situations in your life that you are surveying with your natural eyes instead of eyes that have been enlivened by the reality of the kingdom of God? Where do you need to reframe your life in the context of eternity? Where 
our hearts still sitting in defensive judgment of God instead of fully surrendering to him, knowing that he will use everything for his good, for our good, and for his glory. Let's stand and we'll sing closing chorus together.